Our Bible reading this morning and the text for the sermon is from Genesis chapter 37, the verses 12 to 36. And I'll invite Nathan up to um, lead us in this reading. Thanks, Nathan. Now, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take this life, his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So far the reading. Thank you, Nathan. The sermon I have the privilege of reading this morning is titled Praiseworthy Providence, being the second sermon in the series on the Joseph narratives written by the Reverend Andrew DeVries. Have you ever heard someone say, that was providential? You are looking for a job and you bump into an old friend at the shop and it turns out this friend has a vacancy at work and you were just the right person. 
providential, we say. Or you go to a wedding, and unexpectedly you are seated at a table with a young man from a faraway place that you would never have met. You fall in love and get married. Providential, we say. Or you happen to be driving past a friend's house, and at the last moment you decide to pop in and discover that they are in a really bad way, and they need someone to pray for them and encourage them. And we say, that was providential. Providence refers to God's good government of our lives. It refers to the way he is working in all the details of our lives, according to his good purposes. But sometimes, when life is difficult and painful, it's very hard for us to imagine that God is at work. Sometimes, it seems like there's not much good government going on in our lives. It seems like God is way out of the picture. That's what it seems like in this episode with Joseph. Here we read about a vicious attack on a 17-year-old young man by his own brothers, which results in him becoming a slave in a foreign country. Not really the go-to passage if you want to talk about God's good government of our lives. Yet God, who is hidden, is very much at work. One of the interesting things about this chapter is that God's name is not even mentioned. Not once. But the author writes it in such a way that we're meant to see God's fingertips are all over it. He is in every twist, in every turn. Providence, it's God's good government for our lives. And it's essential that you know this, because I'm sure that all of us have asked at one time or another, when things are not going well with us, we've said, where is God? When you have sinned, been sinned against by a person that you love, and you think, where is God in all of this? When you've been rejected from the university course or turned down for that job promotion and you wonder, where could God be at this time? When the operation on your back hasn't worked and you think, where is God going with all of this? Then you need to know that the hidden hand of God is at work, even in the darkness, even in the suffering, even in the grief. He has a plan, he has a purpose, and he can be trusted. So firstly, let's look at the providence of God at work in the ordinary things. It's just another day, normal day at home, at the home of Jacob. The brothers are out looking after the flock, and Joseph's at home with Dad. Now remember that Joseph is the golden boy, the father's favourite, but he's also Daddy's choice to further the promises of God. But Jacob is worried about his ten sons who are out working, so he gives Joseph the job of going to check on them. Now there's a fair bit of irony here in the text of verse 14. He wants Joseph to see if there is literally shalom, peace, with the brothers. And remember that last time we saw that the brothers couldn't even speak shalom, peace, to Joseph. Clearly there is not shalom in the family, and we should be crying out, what on earth are you thinking, Jacob? Don't you have a clue what's going on under your own roof? So Jacob sends Joseph off to Shechem, 80 kilometres north of Hebron. If this was a movie, the scary, foreboding music would start playing. Because when you hear the word Shechem, you should be thinking massacre. 
When you hear the word Rwanda, you have the images of the mass murder of the Tutsis by the Hutu majority. Well, that's what happened at Shechem. The mass murder of the Shechemites by Simeon and Levi, sons number two and three of Jacob, which we read of later in the narrative. They went on a bloodthirsty rampage to kill all the men of the city as retribution for what was done to their sister. So Joseph is nearing Shechem. The intensity of the music is building and he's wandering around in the field, dazed and apparently a bit lost in the middle of nowhere. Now the music is really pounding and bam, he meets a stranger. In fact, the stranger finds Joseph and initiates a conversation with him. What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. And miracle of miracles, this man just happens to have seen his brothers. Not only that, he even overheard them talking about the fact that they were going to go down to Dothan. What a coincidence. Joseph manages to be found at just the right time by the only man in the region who happens to know where his brothers, where to find Joseph's brothers. Amazing, isn't it? This is the work of providence of God. The invisible hand of God at work to ensure that the plan for Joseph's life comes to pass. What we notice about all this is how ordinary it is. There are no voices from heaven. There are no signs and wonders. There's nothing that we could say is even remotely supernatural. Just a chance encounter with some anonymous individual. But it's all God's providence. It's his good governance of Joseph's life. Even such an ordinary event like this is part of his plan. Notice that if Joseph didn't have this ordinary encounter, then he wouldn't have found his brothers. He wouldn't have been betrayed. He wouldn't have gone down to Egypt. He wouldn't have saved his family and preserved the line of the Messiah. And there wouldn't have been Jesus dying on the cross. And you and I wouldn't be sitting here. All because a man said to Joseph, I know where your brothers are. It's amazing, isn't it? It's called providence. One of the road signs that I don't like to see is men at work ahead. It usually means that there's going to be a whole lot of traffic cones out. There's going to be quite a few people standing around not doing much and that there will be some delay. Now the purpose of these signs is to alert us to the fact that something is happening up ahead. Well, God doesn't put up a sign to alert us to when he's going to be doing something. There is no God at work ahead sign in our lives. And the reason he doesn't put up that sign is because he's always at work. He's at work in the ordinary things. It's his providence when you get stuck in traffic. It's his providence when you, who you end up talking to after the service. It's his providence that you're here this morning to hear this sermon and not somewhere else. It might all seem so ordinary, but God is at work. Nothing that you might call supernatural might ever happen in your life. That's pretty much how most people experience the Christian walk. Just ordinary days and ordinary things and ordinary conversation. And being fed spiritually by God's ordinary ways of feeding us through his word and the sacraments. But God is at work in your life regardless. 
And what it means to live by faith is to trust that God is at work. He's at work day by day in the mundane, in the chance encounter, in the ordinary, shaping you and your life according to his good governance. So that's the providence of God in the ordinary. Now let's consider the providence of God in the plans of wicked men. The perspective of the story shifts in verse 17b, where we are given the perspective of Joseph's brothers. We get to listen in on their schemes and plans, and clearly they're up to no good. They see Joseph coming in the distance. They probably, excuse me, they probably know it was him. Why? That coat. They're out in their working clothes, and here comes Joseph in his special robe, his suit and tie, if you will. By the time he arrives, plan A has been formulated, and plan A is pretty simple. Kill him and throw him into the cistern where his body won't be found. And the cisterns in that region were large bottle-shaped pits that were honed out of rock and used for storing water. They could be up to 20 feet deep, and because of their shape, once you're in, there was no way out. Joseph was in big trouble. But notice the motivation of the brothers. What do they hate about Joseph? They hate his dreams. They say, here comes that dreamer, in verse 19. They literally say, here comes the Lord of the dreams. Then in verse 20, we're told that the plan is designed to destroy the dream. Then we will see what comes of those dreams. Joseph's dream was that he would rule over them. Now remember, this wasn't just any old dream. It's not a goal for the future like we talk about dreams. The young person who says, I always had a dream of playing a final for the Broncos, but now I've hurt my knee and the dream is lost. It's not that kind of dream. Remember, Joseph's dreams were revelations from God. They were actually God's plans for the future. God's plan was that Joseph would rule so that he could fulfill a number of his promises. So let's be really clear here. The brothers weren't simply fighting against Joseph. They were fighting against God. They don't like God's choice of Joseph to fulfill his plan. So they want to kill God's plan. Isn't that what we see in the natural disposition of the human heart? I won't have God rule over me. I won't have his Christ. I won't worship him. I'll do anything to destroy that. But the Bible and this story reminds us, you can't kill God's plans. Remember how Psalm 2 puts it, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But God laughs. His plan is that all will bow before Jesus, and no one can kill that plan. It will happen. That's where all of history is going. So plan A is murder. But then Reuben comes up with plan B. Reuben was the oldest son, so he was responsible for the well-being of the rest of the family. His plan was to look after Joseph and bring him back to Dad. But Reuben's plan isn't followed. His rejected leadership is actually one of the recurrent themes in these narratives, and he ends up in despair. Then there is plan C from Judah. 
As the brothers come and sit down to have lunch, he comes up with a great plan. Notice how callous and hateful these brothers are. They had just stripped Joseph. They took him and they threw him into the cistern. The verbs all highlight the violence and ferocity of what these ten men did to this 17-year-old boy. They should have been sick to their stomachs, but instead they fill their stomachs. It's lunchtime. Imagine them saying grace before lunch. Dear Lord, thank you for your gracious provision for us. Please protect us and our families, lead us not into temptation, and bring us home safely from our journey. Amen. As Judah looks up and scans the horizon, he just happens to see some traders who just happen to be on their way to Egypt. It's an opportunity to make some money. Sell the boy. After all, he is our brother. What compassion. Now what I want you to notice here is that again God is in complete control. I've been talking about plan A, B and C, but there really was ever only one plan. That was God's plan. In his providence, his good governance, he was going to send Joseph down to Egypt. That's how this event is interpreted by scripture. In Genesis chapter 45 verse 8, when talking to his brothers, Joseph says, It was not you who sent me, but God. In Psalm 105 it says, Of God, he called the famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food, and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. God is ultimately the one who sent Joseph down to Egypt. The amusing thing here is that Judah thinks he's killing the dream. But God is using his wicked plan to ensure the dream remains alive. We have a very wise God. Is this his sense of humour? But there's obviously something disturbing here. God's good governance of our lives includes the use of wicked human wickedness. God's good governance of Joseph's life included the helplessness of the pit. Now again, let's be clear. God is not responsible for human wickedness and sin. They couldn't say, the devil made me do it. They couldn't say, God made me do it. It is absolutely wicked to blame God in any way for our own sin. Our sin is our sin. But what we must recognise is that God's providence encompasses even human sin. He even uses human wickedness to further his plans and purposes. Everything serves his providence. What kind of God would he be if that wasn't the case? If he's not in control of wickedness and can't use evil to accomplish his plans, he'd be pretty helpless, wouldn't he? He'd have to get really lucky for any of his plans to come true. If he's not in control of human wickedness, then the cross was just a happy accident. Because it took the sin of the jealousy of the chief priests, the sin of betrayal by Judas, the sin of denial of justice by Pontius Pilate to get him on that cross. If these were all just chance events outside of God's control, then how could we even suggest that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? There'd be no love. There'd be just chance. We wouldn't be praising God for his love. We'd have to praise him for his luck. 
Joseph's experience is a shadow of the experience of Jesus. We see Jesus' shadow cast back into the Old Testament here. Because like Jacob, God the Father, seeking the peace of the world, sent his son to his brothers. He sent him to his own, but his own would not receive him. But unlike Jacob, who didn't know what would happen to his beloved son, God the Father knew exactly what would happen. God knew he would be betrayed and sold, and he would be stripped and beaten, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. He knew he'd be sentenced to death on a Roman cross, not for his own sin, but to bear the sin of his people. How did he know this? Providence. This was his good government of Jesus' life as well. He used the wickedness of evil men to bring us salvation, to bring blessing to the world. What a glorious God he is. So that's the providence of the ordinary, the providence of God in the plans of wicked men. And finally, let's consider the providence of God in the darkness. So after Joseph had been sold into slavery, there is just one more issue to deal with for the brothers. What do we tell dear old dad? And they have a plan for that as well, of course. They take the damaged, richly ornamented robe, the symbol of Joseph's rule, and they cover it in the blood of a goat, and they present it to their father. Now notice that they don't directly lie. They just deceive their father. They simply say, check out the robe and see if you recognise it. They leave Jacob to draw his the only and obvious conclusion, that Joseph is dead. Notice the irony of it all. Remember that Jacob deceived his own father with goatskins and Esau's clothing. And now he is deceived with goat's blood and his son's clothing. It's an utter tragedy. The boys have killed the son the father loves, but they can't kill the love of the father. Jacob goes into mourning and he says he's never going to stop mourning his son. And usually at that time, you'd have a period of mourning of about 40 or 80 days. And after that, you'd be expected to go on with life. But here Jacob is saying, my dreams have been so shattered, I can never go on with life. Everything is over for Jacob. It's just darkness. He will not be comforted. As an aside, I wonder how much comfort the brothers really could have brought. Consider the heights of hypocrisy that would have been to console Dad about the death that didn't happen. Jacob is in despair. But the chapter doesn't end there, does it? There's verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. There is a world of comfort in that verse. It might not be up on your fridge. You might not put this on cards to people who are going through a tough time. You might not say this to people who have just been diagnosed with cancer, but it's the kind of verse that fits into that category. The meanwhile here suggests that at that time, Jacob, at the time, same time Jacob is grieving over his son, the dead son is actually very much alive in Egypt. It's saying to us, you can't always see the hidden hand of God in your life. Most of the time, as we go through life, we're ignorant of what God is doing. You see, 
All the characters in, in this story are ignorant of God's plan. Jacob, Joseph, the brothers, the whole lot. They don't have a clue of what God is doing. They don't see the full picture. All that was in Jacob and Joseph's picture at this point in time was just tears and suffering. How do you comfort Joseph, Jacob here? What do you tell him? That God has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, God's wonderful plan for our lives sometimes takes us down into the deepest pits of suffering. Perhaps that is what you are experiencing in your own life. But there is a meanwhile in this verse. Meanwhile, Joseph is not dead. He's in Egypt. And there is a meanwhile at work in our lives as well. So this is what you tell Jacob. Yes, God does have a wonderful plan for your life. He's at work, even in this. But it's not going to be until about 20 years later that Jacob will know it. When this will all start to make sense. That even this was part of God's amazing plan for his life. The author writing Genesis knows more than Joseph and Jacob. He knows the ending. He knows the big picture. That's why this is here. We need to take into account the bigger picture so that we don't give way to despair in the darkness. God is at work in our lives, even when his plan is nothing like the plan we have scripted for ourselves. Because his purposes for our lives are far grander and far more glorious than ours. His purpose is to conform us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, and he's at work, even in the darkest times. William Cooper wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which says in verse 4, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's the question, isn't it? Do you trust God who governs your life? Do you trust that there is a smiling face behind the dark providences in our lives? That's what the gospel assures us of, doesn't it? God can be trusted. If God planned to bring you and I salvation through the suffering of his own beloved son at the hands of wicked men, then I can trust him, even in the pit. Let us not just believe in the providence of God. Let's praise him for it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to be reminded that you are in control, that you work through all things to your glory and for our good. Please work in each one of us. Remind us daily of your love of what you have already completed through the death and resurrection of Jesus our Saviour. May our lives be examples of gratitude and of willing service in your kingdom. May you help us to shine your light in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.